even if you're bad at math, you understand that 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 amount of Kool-Aid in the water is going to turn the water a certain flavor, right? That is a massive, massive cohort. And if we're doing nothing but exploiting them for financial reasons and thinking they're a pain in the ass, for, for me, I was like, there's a huge perspective here that's being missed. Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work, while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time. Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth, where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truths playbook you never got. I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. What does touring with Wynton Marsalis and opening Abercrombie & Fitch stores have to do with cultivating our next generation of leaders? I reached out to Dr. John Schaffner to discuss his research on coaching millennials. We didn't get to that research at all. Instead, he made an impassioned case for why we should be expanding coaching in our organizations. John heads the MBA coaching program at Ohio State's Fisher College of Business and serves as core facilitator at the Columbia Coaching Certification Program at Columbia University. Prior to earning his doctorate, he spent 20 years in senior learning, development, and operational roles in industry, from the jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra to Home Depot to fashion giant ANF. So listen in. You'll leave with a better understanding of what coaching is and what it's not, and perhaps see how coaching can address many of our most pressing leadership, maybe even societal challenges. This interview has been lightly edited and does contain profanity. John, welcome to 97% Effective. Michael, I just had to vomit my mouth a little bit listening to all that nonsense, but the fact that I'm sitting here with you today is a true pleasure. I'm really excited to be here and talk to you, despite listening <laughs> to all that nonsense that you just sloviated out. Your bio is really diverse. People can look that up. I love the fact that you're a practitioner scholar, which brings multiple aspects here. PhD with 20 years you know, in the learning and development roles. That's purely midlife crisis, okay? That's just the red Porsche, really, in many ways. It's just an intellectual red Porsche, <laughs> if you will. Well, we could go deeper <laughs> on all those experiences, but you know, I'd like to actually start with, can you share one factor story that would give some insight into you that we would not be able to find out about you searching on the internet? Yeah, so, and you know me as being the East Coast sarcastic guy that I am, and, and I appreciate you giving me space to be that. Despite the fact I don't want to be too authentic like you write in your book. And I think that's a really excellent, excellent point. And as I'm sort of asking, as we're entering in contracting here a little bit, like there's so much in your book that I'm trying to kind of connect to my own experience. So well done on that, Michael, by the way. That's really, really good stuff there. So the story. I have to go back to Winton Marsalis, right? So let's talk about how to get promoted. 
studied in Greece my senior year. I was on a plane with a young woman whose father, Bob Jones, was Thelonious Monk, Duke Ellington, and Sarah Vaughan's road manager back in the day. Bob Jones's daughter, Nalini Jones, became a fast friend of mine studying in Athens in 1992. And she and I both moved to New York City after we graduated. We were both studying abroad our senior years. Well, her dad also runs jazz in the Jazz Fest in New Orleans, which has been around for like 40 years now. Um, Newport Jazz and Folk Festival up in Newport, Rhode Island. He used to run JVC Jazz Festival. So I was just some schmuck out of college. And Nalini would work backstage at all these festivals. And I would too, just put in Cokes and red M&Ms and bowls and shit like that, right? She was really good friends with Winton's brother, Branford Marsalis, of the Marsalis family of New Orleans. Winton needed an assistant. It was heard on the street, I guess. So we were at the Saratoga Springs Jazz Festival. This must have been 1993, maybe. maybe not. Winton was playing. Nalini was backstage as was I. And she told Winton, hey, I hear you need an assistant. My friend John could be your assistant. And he was like, all right, man, um, let's go play some hoops. So we went behind the stage. There was a basketball court. And he said, if you beat me in basketball, you are my assistant. So let's just think about that for a moment in terms of like the greatest <laughs> interview of all time, right? And there's, there's a couple other elements of this that, that I think are, are sort of interesting and I don't really talk about very often. So I beat him. I beat him 12 to 4. I'm 6'2", and about at the time was, was in, in better shape. But I was 6'2", pretty athletically built. Winton is maybe 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, but we didn't know each other that well, right? So, so basketball is a pretty physical sport. And, uh, and we did not... I did, listen, the last thing I wanted to do is bust his lip open and be the one reason why his career was open. Exactly. Over. So anyhow, I... Posted up, hit a bunch of threes. I won 12 to four. I became his assistant. So there's your story. <laughs> Incredible. And people heard it here first. I mean, back at now that would be on social media, it would probably be out there. <laughs> and, and Winston would probably deny that. So I have to add, I, I, but he wouldn't deny that actually. So I have to add a preamble, not a preamble, but I have to ha- add an epilogue to that. So in this, I think may, may be a segue into some of the topics we come, come around today, What which is... Winton, I probably played him. When we were on the road, we played pickup hoops everywhere we went. We took a basketball with us. One of my jobs as road manager was to find a place to play hoops, whether it was in Istanbul or Pori, Finland. We were always playing, finding places to play. That was our kind of outlet. And it was also a big kind of team building thing as, as, as a band on the road. I probably played him 1,500 times after that, I would think. Not always one-on-one, mostly kind of in team dynamics. He never played on my team. He never wanted to play on my team. And I probably beat him maybe six. Of the 1,500. (laughs) Of the 1,500, right? I beat him to get the job, and I might have beaten him six times. And the point there is Winton is one of those guys who has a level of ambition and competition that douses anybody else. There's such, I don't know if you would even call it like an alpha nature, but like, he refuses to lose. There's a Michael Jordan element to him. He played Michael Jordan in basketball too once and, and almost beat him. And he's not a great basketball player. He just has a little, he has a little step move into the lane and he has a left-handed jump shot and he has like very precious lips that no one wants to smack. <laughs> so he uses that to his advantage. And as I was thinking, as I'm thinking about this story, I'm like, I think there's applicability to 
some of the points you're trying to make and get promoted around using the power that's afforded to you and using it not in a manipulative sort of evil way, but using it in an effective, productive way. So I think the reason why I'm I'm talking about, about Winton is one, my arc from that moment to what I ended up doing in my doctorate and my dissertation, those are those are important moments on that arc. And one of them with Winton particularly was in jazz music, there was historically a mentorship program, a, a baptism by fire, use whatever cliche you wish, but there was a developmental program that was innate that built the skill sets of Art Blakey. And I mean, John Coltrane learned how to be who he was through Miles Davis. Like Duke Ellington was specifically like the University of Duke Ellington. There was a direct handoff and a nutritive path for young jazz musicians that was critical. There was a honor to supporting the, the growth of those less experienced than you and I saw it firsthand. So on my first tour, I took out Ollie Jackson, who's still playing with Winton to this day. Ollie was 18. I was 22, right? We were halfway through that tour, and Winton was like, you need to tell Ollie he needs to go home. And I was like, what? Like, we have 18 more gigs. Like, what? I have to send Ollie home? He's like, he's sad. Like, he can't play. Like, he needs... And so I had to go to Ollie and be like, <laughs> you need to get better, bro. Like... <laughs> I don't know what to say to you. Like we're, we're friends and pretty much peers, but he's saying you're not good enough, right? You, you need to, to get better. You need to, you stayed on the tour. He's still playing with Witten today. But I guess the point I'm making probably too, too robustly is that seed of an idea of how do we develop those, the youth in really nutritive, important ways really was the seed for me, right? So for additionally, whenever, so we did this, so this is what I call operational, operationalizing excellence, okay? So first and foremost, what does excellence look like? Well, Winton has a, a clear understanding of what jazz excellence looks like. He is, he is inspired by the founding fathers of Jelly Roll Morton and Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and John Coltrane, et cetera, et cetera, who established a standard, right? So first and foremost, we have this standard of excellence. Second of all, making a claim that I'm a part of that standard, hence this idea of operationalizing around it. Okay, so then how do we how do we get to that? What what are the processes and procedures that move us into a state of excellence? The first piece is identifying mm-hmm. it, right? There's a lot of bullshit out there today, right? Where is excellence in, in today's world? I mean, I think as an old man, I'm like, get off my lawn. You're like, you don't know what excellence is. And I know that this is part and partial to my maybe generational experience. But part of it is like, listen, I've seen what f***ing excellence looks like. And there's a lot of bullshit out here. And a lot of people fooling themselves about what it ultimately is and how hard it is to get to it. So that's one being of this idea. So, so that's one place where I kind of, I start. You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview. Well, so there's that theme of coming from the jazz world, this bringing people up. Yeah. And then this idea of operationalizing excellence, very applicable to, to leadership and bringing people into organizations. So then I, I, 
I ended up going working at Home Depot, working at Abercrombie and Fitch, and I had especially an experience at A and F where I was charged with their leadership development. Essentially, what I, my job was to get about five thousand twenty-two, twenty-three year olds up to snuff in terms of their leadership abilities to go run flagships for us abroad. It's a pretty big deal. Flagships were in Germany and in, in the UK. They were in Italy and Japan. Dude, 22-year-old kids, do you remember who you were at 22? Can come back to that. <laughs> Probably don't want to. Yeah, like that. That's a, that's a moment, right? It's a moment, right? So first of all, I saw what leadership's impact was on Ali Jackson in the, the, the Winton example. And then I think another breadcrumb trail here for me was this challenge in and of itself. Can these kids run? I mean, these boxes that we were running at A&F were $150 million stores. Like who, who do you know runs a $150 million company by themselves at 22 right now? Like you don't, and with the complexity, it's not a total digital company. That was a, that was a face-to-face customer interaction, like inventory management. There's a lot to that. And these kids, and I call them kids just because I, because who gives a shit? I'm calling them kids because they were kids, right? They were kids. They were not deeply, you know, worldly yet. And they went and did the job. And they did the job well. And not only that, I learned how how absorbent they were to the leadership world. So then at ANF, I ended up getting my coaching certification. So my coaching certification back at Columbia, where I teach now, and where you have also shined, I learned the leadership, I think, style and mechanism that works better than mm. any other I saw. Right. So I saw that I saw that impact on 22, 23 year old people at at A and F, and so some kind of idea came into my head. It was like, but so why is executive coaching identified purely for the executives yeah. of organizations? I started to realize that most of these executives that I was coaching were too well barnacled into their into their behavioral patterns that it was kind of boring to me to try to chip those off. I wasn't into it. I was much more into it to building kind of the the skill set and the foundational skills. And again, I'm a baseball coach too, and and this also informs my my viewpoint, which is I, I believe in the fundamentals first, right? I believe you build fundamentals and you your body grows and, and your fundamentals yeah. will go along with you. I was thinking about that idea when I when I went to get my PhD was how do we do that? I started my research and I was interested in this idea of coaching and this generational phenomenon of millennials. And so my so the thing that really kind of tilted me into like this is something I don't want to explore was a mere Google search. And you could do that right now. Search up millennials, just write in millennials on, in a Google uh, search box, right? What will come up ad nauseum will be two things. This is not a Google Scholar search. This is a Google search. Two things ad nauseum will come up. There are pain in the ass. That will come up more than anything else. And the second will be, how do you sell to them? All right, so these are two manipulative perspectives on this massive generation, which is about 85 million, which is bigger than the baby boomer generation. So even if you're bad at math, you understand that 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 amount of Kool-Aid in the water is going to turn the water a certain flavor, right? That is a massive, massive cohort. And if we're doing nothing but exploiting them for financial reasons and thinking they're a pain in the ass, for, for me, I was like, there's a huge perspective here that's being missed. Right. And the thing that I think about more than any is, and I know this might sound far afield, but this is driving some of my interest here and I'm getting like all fired up. 
is the GI Bill. The GI Bill has impacted more presidents, senators, legal careers, doctor, you know, uh, physician careers than any other developmental program that the United States has known. And we can go back and forth in terms of the benefits of it. And I know that there's elements of it that have, have had, um, that, that have been affected by, uh, like under, under supported social groups have not benefited as much from the GI Bill. But in its essence, this idea of a developmental program to elevate, to elevate Ollie Jackson from a sad drummer to a professional drummer, to elevate and to thank veterans returning from World War II and to give them a better life. I was thinking along those same lines. I was like, where is this developmental program for millennials? Because how can we how can we look at our children or our fellow you know, Americans or fellow just citizens and, and think of them with this kind of negative aspersion about them being a pain in the ass. Yeah, they're a pain in the ass. Lots of people are pains in the asses. Like that shouldn't be the barrier, right? So that was, I'll stop there, but that was, that was an emotional place that I got to that made me, that spurned my curiosity, if you will. Yeah, it spurred the curiosity. And so that brings you a couple years back to starting and leading that coaching program at Ohio State. Can you just define like what coaching is? And I think this is interesting because you brought up jazz too. Just how that contrasts with mentorship. People use this all the time. You had a really good article I wrote yeah. about this, but just to summarize coaching and coaching versus mentorship. All right. So uh, real simple, two very simple kind of coaching definitions, and then I'll endeavor to define what it's not. And what it's not is it's not mentorship. So I think that's one of the things that, that's helpful for us as we kind of explore constructs of, these, of this nature is what is it and what is it not. Coaching is, is a process that enables leaders to make sense of things and to thrive. Those are two very, very important components is to make sense of things and to thrive. The means by which that happens, we don't need to get into here, but essentially it's one-on-one discussion-based help. All right. So it's also defined as taking very important people from where they are to where they want to go, right? The idea of coach emerges from the, the root of stagecoach. So I like to use the, the story of Sherlock Holmes. He lives at 221 B Baker Street. So coaching is something that establishes where you are at right now at this particular point in time. We're using this metaphor of, of Sherlock Holmes being in his apartment, 221B Baker Street. So where does he want to go? Most likely he wants to go to the scene of the crime, right? So how does he get there? Well, he gets there through the conveyance vehicle of a coach. So that's how that definition also works for me too, right? Is he gets in that coach, a stage coach, they take him to where he wants to go. That's the definition I use. Why coaching is not mentorship. Mentorship helps, yes. But mentorship is actually rooted in the odyssey. I'm a classics major too, so that's going to have to show up here at some point in time. Menti was was an elder that lived on an island off of the off of Ithaca's coast. Ithaca is what is the home island of of Homer. Uh, excuse me, not of Homer, but of, of of Odysseus. Odysseus is trying to come home after the after the Trojan War. His son Telemachus, and so he doesn't know what to do. So what does he do? He goes across in a boat to Menti. Menti tells him what to do. Okay, that's where that the, the core definition of mentor comes from. Comes from from Menti, the character out of the Odyssey, right? 
So what did he do? Well, he, he was old and wise and had stories, and those stories were conveyed to Telemachus to give him an understanding of what to do. And that is, that's core to what mentorship ultimately is. And there's a couple elements of that kind of construct-wise that, that are important to understand. And we'll get to that. The second piece is mentorship has worked well in a certain controllable element of American society, particularly the, the advent of the corporation, right, which really emerged out of World War II. The American corporation, 1950s, the way that sort of we were structured organizationally, the paradigm that we used was, was the military paradigm, right? We were, the, the West was very successful, and the, you know, the Allies were very successful in World War II, obviously, and so how were they successful? Well, the hierarchy was one of the reasons why this, the chain of command system worked, right? Worked in pretty, pretty fantastic ways. It could be argued, and it was argued, right? That paradigm was the way that, that um, organizations mirrored that, that paradigm, the chain of command, right? Well, that was also built for white males, right? There was a system particularly, that's who were working in corporations at the time, that's what the system worked for. And so because it was also military, it still exists in the military, right? It still exists because mentorship is built around the concept of succession planning and that alone. If you're, if you're here at this level, well, I did your job before you, I will mentor you up by telling you what to do to get you to this level. And I'm thusly mentored to the next level by the same progress or procedure, if you will, right? So as you know, as a coach, right, that's that's a tell-oriented uh, engagement, right? I'm telling you, I'm helping you through telling you, right? Listening is not part of that. So that coaching is, it's coaching the, the water runs the other way, right? The water, the water runs from you talking and me listening, it's a different engagement. It's a different experience. There's effective pockets of, of, of mentorship. The, the military still uses it to, to a certain level of effectiveness. Uh, the medical field still uses it too, right? They're, they call it coaching, but really uh, surgical residents, which actually I, I coach from time to time, surgical residents have surgical mentors who just show them how to cut someone open and sew them back up, right? That's a very tactical skill set. And that's what mentorship is, is telling someone from your own level of expertise. The way that that's different from coaching is coaching does not make that assumption that I have expertise. If I'm coaching you, Michael, and you know this well, and this is for your audience, if I'm coaching you, Michael, I believe deeply in the, the philosophy that you have all the answers inside of you. Part of my job is to be a thought partner to help you move from where you're thinking about this thing to the place that you want to go. Yeah. One final thing about coaching, and this is a distinction between coaching and therapy rather than coaching and mentorship, but I think it also is, is helpful to, to make that distinction, is my wife's a psychotherapist. She lives in the world of diagnosing for pain and trauma and hurt and malady. That's what her expertise has taught her to look for, and I look for the other side of that, which is flourishing. So an example there would be if I were to teach, if I were to coach you to run a marathon, let's say, and you had a broken ankle, well, you'd have to get that ankle healed before we would start having prof professional conversations. I live in that performance zone mm -hmm. whilst the osteopath or the psychotherapist is dealing in the healing zone. So those are very different parts of our motivational capacity, 
our neurochemistry, our, our, our physiology, just essentially our software systems are very different that handle those two, two directions. Yeah. That was a long explanation. Well, so those are very useful analogies to think about these things because coaching, mentorship, therapy, there's obviously some cross there, but they get used a lot interchangeably. That's where I come back to this idea of like, what is the GI Bill for organizations right now for millennials? What is the GI Bill there? Where are we aligning our focus on developing them? And I hope I don't sound like some sort of hippy-dippy goofball in saying this. I just think the numbers bear out. They are the army that we have, and we need to think about developing them. John, how do people, we'll put this in the show notes also, but what's the best way for them to either reach you or see your work or even experiencing your coaching aside from at Ohio State or Columbia? jayshaffner.com. My LinkedIn is up to date with contact information in it. I'm searchable at Ohio State. Yeah, I'm pretty accessible. Those ways are probably the easiest ways to, to do that. John, thank you very much for spending time and having the conversation. This is an absolute delight. Michael, I hope we do this again in some form, whether it be podcast form or, you know, somewhere in Europe. That'd be my flourishing future that I'd like to sort of adhere to. Dr. John Schaffner, flourishing. Oof, that sounds good. Thanks for listening to 97% Effective, where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderoth.com. That's www.changwinderoth.com.